may I speak in the name of the one true living God, the God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find being told or encouraged to be more like Jesus to be a rather difficult thing. Sermons or books or studies, Bible studies, that hold Jesus up as our example for how to live and that end with, so let's go out from here, let's resolve to be more like him, our wonderful saviour, can often be inspirational and motivational for a while, but I soon find that there is something significant lacking. Even if the will becomes willing, even if my mind has been changed and I think, yes, this is the life I want to live, that is the way I want to conduct myself, I do want to be more like Jesus. This resolve and determination seems to last very, very short, for a very short time. For me, it can often be hours or even minutes before my great intentions fall flat once again, and I fail to live like Jesus. Life for me seems so very different to life for Jesus, and therefore the encouragement to be more like him, or the command to follow in his footsteps and to do what he did, just seems utterly impossible. And perhaps even more of a problem, this repetitive cycle of wanting to be more like Jesus, trying and then failing, trying and then failing, can leave us feeling like giving up. What's the point in trying again to be more like Jesus when each time I fail? I return to church week after week or to Bible studies or quiet times, resolved to try harder, do better, be more holy, be more like Jesus. And each time I fail, and it's so disheartening. So why bother? Well, the encounter with Jesus that we have reached this week as we work through Luke's Gospel together seems to have something very powerful to say to us if this is how we sometimes feel about following Jesus. Jesus' time in the wilderness being tempted by Satan is a well-known incident. However, if the lesson, if the only lesson we take from this is an example of how we should respond when we are tempted to do the wrong thing, then not only will we fall once again into that cycle of trying harder and harder and failing, but we will, I think, have missed the key point of the whole encounter. However, please don't misunderstand here. I'm not saying that there aren't lessons for us to learn from this passage about how to live, about how to face temptations, about how to deal with those desires to, that pull us away from following the life of Jesus. There clearly are examples and lessons for us, and perhaps we can very easily and quickly sketch out the headlines of three important lessons. We're told as this passage begins that Jesus was tempted for 40 days and the three temptations we read about seem to summarise what was at stake. In verses 2 to 4 we're told that Jesus didn't eat for 40 days and that he was hungry. <laughs> now there's an understatement. 40 days without food and a, Satan is trying to force Jesus to doubt the Father's provision for him. Can and will God the Father give to his followers everything they need? That's the question. Satan seems to show this very clearly isn't true. Jesus is all alone in the wilderness, desperately hungry. He needs food. 
Yet Jesus' remarkable response to this temptation, and remember, of course, for Jesus, it was a temptation. It's not a temptation for me if someone were to say, turn that paving slab into a pizza. However much I might want to do it, I can't do it. This is something that Jesus could do. He could provide food in the desert for himself. Yet his remarkable response when tempted in this way is not to doubt for a moment that the Father will give him all that he needs. Man does not live on bread alone, says Jesus, effectively making clear that there is more at stake than the painful, empty, gnawing stomach. However massively important that need is, the Father is able to give Jesus, and by extension all those who follow, what they really need. Fellowship with him, his care, his protection is what he provides. All of that is enough to keep us going, however hungry we are, however much pain we're in, however lonely we are, whatever our circumstances, the Father is able to give us all that we need. It's hard to believe that though, isn't it? Really hard to believe that. Much easier when you don't have to truly work out where your food is coming from, as countless Christians all over the world have to do every day. But even for us who don't have issues like that, it is still tricky to believe that the Father is able to give us all that we need. Yet Jesus shows us and teaches us that we can trust the Father's provision. That's the first temptation. In verses 5 to 8, Satan is trying to get Jesus to doubt the Father's position. The Father is the one who is worthy of all worship and thanks and praise. He has created all things, he has redeemed us, he cares for us, and he promises us a glorious future with him for all eternity. Satan, in this second temptation, invites Jesus to worship and serve him and offers Jesus the whole world for doing so. Yet it's clear in Jesus' mind that no one else should be served or worshipped or thanked or praised. No one else should hold the primary position in our lives. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only, is Jesus' response. No one or nothing else should be our idol, our hero, the one we give our time and energy to, certainly not Satan. So once again Jesus teaches us this time not to doubt the Father's position. And then in verses 9 to 12, Satan tries to get Jesus to doubt the Father's promises. The Bible does indeed say that the Father will dispatch his angels to protect the one he loves. So surely if Jesus throws himself off the temple, the Father will intervene. He has promised. Yet putting the Father to the test in this way grossly distorts the promise the Father has made, which are promises to love those who live in submission to him, who cling to him, who rest in his shadow and under, hide under his wing, as the psalm describes it. The Father promises unlimited aid to those who live in loving fellowship and intimacy with him not to those who play testing games with him. Jesus sees through all this also and reminds us by his actions and his words that we can and indeed should and must trust the Father's promises. So in these three temptations there are certainly lessons for us about trusting the Father's provision, his position and his promises.
Three Ps. I know a number of you will like Three Ps. Yet the danger is, as we said at the beginning, that we're simply left with that message, try harder, be more like Jesus, put more effort in to trust the Father, grit your teeth, do better. However, that isn't what we're meant to take from this passage and misses the critical lesson. The lesson we're meant to take away from this incident isn't try harder, it's relax, rejoice and respond. The way that Luke introduces us to this encounter is as critical as the encounter itself almost. Luke has made it, already made it very clear who Jesus is as he has penned the first few chapters of his account of Jesus' life. Back in chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary twice, he explained that the... Sorry, when he appeared to the angel Gabriel twice, he explained that the baby that she would have would be the Son of God. That happens in chapter 1. When his parents accidentally left him behind in Jerusalem, he told them that he was the Son of God. And in the passage that Tom took us through so helpfully last week, we noticed the voice from God the Father in heaven declared, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So there can be no doubt about the true identity of Jesus after these opening chapters. And then, as the list of names in Jesus' family history begins in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, we find this intriguing phrase, don't we? Luke writes, Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of, the son of, the son of, and on goes the list. But this list takes us all the way back to Eden and ends with the phrase that Jesus was the son of Adam, the son of God. There we have again his identity, a clear, clear explanation of who he is. That's the words that end chapter 3, the last words of chapter 3, and then into our passage in chapter 4 today. This is the setting for the incident between Jesus and Satan. Jesus is without any doubt and clearly shown to be the Son of God in the sense that he is a second Adam. Just as Adam was a Son of God, the head of the human race, now Jesus steps in as the Son of God, the head of a new human race. That's what Satan is driving at in this encounter, as he repeatedly says, if you are the Son of God, then do this. If you are the Son of God. As Jesus is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, he faces Satan as Adam faced Satan. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam had all he could ever want or need in a beautiful place with a beautiful wife for company. Here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is all alone in the desert, in the wilderness, with nothing and no one. And yet, the outcome for this new head of the human race, this new Son of God, was so very different from the first time. The glorious truth of this incident here in Luke 4 is that Jesus, the Son of God, succeeded where Adam, the Son of God, failed. Jesus achieves what Adam and every human being who ever lived just simply couldn't achieve. Jesus has reversed the apparently endless pattern of failure on the part of God's people, his church, throughout all of history. Every single human being who has ever lived has failed in that test, that temptation that Satan brings. Jesus has reversed that. 
Here we learn in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus has come not only to show us how to cope with temptation, Jesus has come to actually conquer temptation, to defeat the source of temptation, to conquer Satan himself. The power to overcome evil comes only as we share Jesus's glorious, triumphant, victorious life, a life that is victorious over Satan. If we turn to Jesus, to the victor, if we look to him, if we fill our minds with him, if we are in him, in Jesus, then we will begin to live a life that has already overcome Satan. As we are filled each day with his Holy Spirit, we are empowered and able to live the new creation, resurrection life of Jesus. We can be part of the new human race with no longer Adam at our head, but Jesus at our head, following in his footsteps, doing as he did. He's the only one who has ever been able to say and will ever be able to resist all temptation to do evil. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Here then, in this epic encounter, at the beginning is the beginning of the end of the power of Satan in the lives of human beings. Here, for the first time ever, the devil finds he is not strong enough to seduce this foe. He cannot seduce Jesus. He's not strong enough to pull Jesus into the problems of temptation. Surely here in this incident is a triumph greater than any other. It says at the end of our passage that Satan departed until an opportune time. There was no other opportune time. This was it. Satan was defeated the first time ever that Satan tried, came to tempt a human being and went away empty with nothing. Jesus beat him. If Jesus had failed here, at the very beginning of his ministry, if he had not demonstrated the power to overcome the devil as he began his work, then nothing else that Jesus could have done or said would have mattered or made any difference. The devil would always have some sort of power over him and therefore over all human beings, over all of us. But praise God, Jesus didn't fail. Jesus passed the test and he passed the test on our behalf. He did succeed and now he, Jesus, stands as the glorious head, as our triumphant king, the one whose life we are invited to share, whose life can flow out of us as we are filled with him. That is why we can, beyond any shadow of a doubt, know that there is a way to resist temptation. Not simply by trying harder, but by sharing in the life of the one who has already resisted all temptation and allowing his life to flow through us to take control of us, to direct all that we do and say. And the invitation from the living God to all of us is to come to Jesus, to be obsessed with Jesus, to be filled with his spirit and to begin to share that glorious, victorious, eternal life, even here and now. What joy and freedom this truth brings. The message of these verses then isn't try harder, to overcome the pull to do the wrong thing. The message of these verses is, relax, rejoice. Jesus has already overcome Satan. Rest in him, respond to him, 
thank him, sing to him, praise him. He has done it. It is finished. It's all over. And we can share that resurrection life. He is our one perfect plea before the throne of God above.